have, uh, we're going to pass around the uh, sign-up sheet for Sunday School one last time. I know there's at least 10 of you that did not sign up yet, and we know who you are. So we will find you. So if you don't sign up, we'll do nasty things to your car while you're sitting here. No, we, uh, we do encourage you to uh, be a part of blessing our kids and uh, seeing God's truth and God's word impact their life just like it is impacting yours. Uh, let's, uh, let's open this morning with uh, prayer. And during this time, I would like to just welcome you to, in your heart, draw into God's presence as we've welcomed, as we've invited God to come be a part of our worship, just at this moment to still your heart and really draw before him. So let's do that in prayer. Father, we do want to just come before you right now or whatever is going on in our life, whatever we're dealing with, whatever decisions we have to make, whatever struggles we're facing, we recognize that, uh, that you are the answer and that all our help, all of our guidance, all direction, all strength comes from you. And so right now we just want to come before you, draw into your word, and Father, we ask that you indeed would teach us, that you would speak to us that by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would minister to each person here. And uh, Lord, maybe there are some here who feel like they've never heard you speak to them. But I pray that this morning they would know that you have spoken. Lord, give us hearts and minds that are open to your word, to your voice, to your power. And may we know what you are wanting to do in us and through us for your glory and your kingdom. So we commit this time to you. We pray that you indeed would dwell in our midst as we are your holy temple and that we would offer fitting spiritual sacrifices that bless you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are this morning going to continue and hopefully finish the story uh, the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Um, the story begins in John chapter 6, verse 1, and uh, let me just read one verse, actually verse 4. Uh, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 happens on one day. The next day, Jesus uh, eludes the crowd goes back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, trying to hide from the crowd. They find him, and it's on the second day that Jesus actually unpacks and unfolds the story, what it means. And uh, we're going to look at that this morning. But there's a verse in chapter, chapter in, uh, a, a verse, verse 4 that really sets the whole context for this whole story that you have to understand. It says, in verse 4, simply, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Um, it's really important to see this story in light of the context of Passover. It was a time of year when all the Jews were excited and were remembering and were celebrating and were looking at the event of their exodus, uh, really their great redeeming uh, event of their history. And so they, uh, during this time, would remember uh, the Passover lamb, and of course uh, the Passover meant 
that they would go out and take a lamb and, and uh, slaughter it. And they would take the blood in, in Egypt. They took the blood and put it over the doorposts of their house. And then they would eat the lamb as a, as a special meal with unleavened bread. And as the death angel came across Egypt, it would pass over their homes. And where it brought death to every other house, uh, that death was passed over them. And through that event, uh, they were led out of Egypt. They were set free from bondage and slavery. And they went out into the wilderness. And for 40 years, God himself sustained them. He fed them. He nourished them. He gave them manna in the wilderness. He gave them drink from the rock. And so for 40 years, they, they miraculously were sustained, were provided, were nourished by God himself. And so every year, many hundreds and many centuries later, the Jews still celebrated this great, great event. And that's the time of year it was. So they were singing, you know, all their good Passover songs. You know, we wish you a merry Passover. We wish you a... Stuff like that. Uh, that's, that's what they were thinking about. And that really sets the context for the story. And Jesus feeds the 5,000. He gives them bread. The next day, they think that's a cool trick and they want more bread. <coughs> they're seeing great potential here. And they're picturing, you know, you've got to understand this in the context, they're picturing what Jesus did, or what, what Moses did. They're thinking, and in fact, in, in, at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, say, surely this is the prophet that Moses promised us. And in uh, Exodus, it, it talks about God sending another prophet like Moses. And they're seeing, they're flashing back to this. And they're thinking, we're not going to have to plant rice ever again. We're not going to have to bake bread because God is going to send this great prophet and he's going to start this great feeding food program. And uh, we're looking forward to the, to the return of those days when God sends bread from heaven. All right? Well, Jesus... Um, as we see throughout the book of John, is trying to open their minds up to this new universe. We talked about this last week. That he's trying to help them understand that all of these physical material blessings are pictures of something much deeper and much more significant. A spiritual universe. A spiritual realm that all this points to. And that these things are temporary and short and don't last long. That you, know, you eat this bread, you're going to get hungry again but that God is offering something better. And so he tries to explain that. Well, he does explain it. They just don't actually understand it very well uh, in the, the remaining part of chapter 6. So let's look at this. Let me read, uh, starting in verse uh, 29. Jesus told them, This is the only work God wants from you, to believe in the one he has sent. They answered, Well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, <coughs> Moses did not give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you have not believed in me, even though you have seen me. We'll stop there for now. Um, Jesus says, ultimately, that all of this, Passover, the symbols of Passover, the great miracle he did, he did feeding them, 
was all a symbol or a sign that pointed to him as the bread of life, that he is the heavenly bread that sustains true life. <coughs> it's interesting to ask God, and it's, it's kind of a bit humorous, they, uh, they come to Jesus and they say, you know, uh, we want to believe you. Jesus says the only work that God requires of you, the true work that he wants from you, is that you believe, that you believe in the one God sent, which is speaking of himself. And they say, okay, you've got you to get the picture of this. He just fed, with five loaves and two fish, he just fed somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people the day before. Most of the people that Jesus is talking with saw this, okay? And they have the nerve to say to him, well, you know, we would like to believe in you, but we need to see something real. What can you do? Show us a sign. And I'm thinking, you know, if that sign did not convince them, you know, what could Jesus possibly do? Uh, what do they want? You know, what, what, did, what could they possibly want more? And uh, the, the, the truth is that these signs were not getting through because they didn't understand their significance. And so Jesus does not give them a sign in terms of another great miracle, but he really points them to himself. And he tries to explain that he is the sign. He is what it all points toward. He's the focus and objective of it all. And uh, that ultimately... He is the food. He is the bread. He is the resource or power to live. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, Bread is a good thing. And by bread, he speaks here really of food in general. Uh, I like food. I like food in pretty much all shapes and sizes, styles. I like Thai food. I like Indian food. I like American food. Uh, You know, I can eat food uh, daily. And pretty much I do. And... It is, we all recognize, we all know, and when you think about it, a great deal of our life revolves around food. Most of us eat three, four, five. I know when I was in high school, I ate six meals a day. And then I snacked in between that. Uh, we, we spend a good portion of our budget uh, every month on food. Uh, we work to eat. At least that's why I work, to eat. Um, it's a big part of our life. And the reason is that we can't live without it. Food is what sustains us. It's what gives us energy. It's what gives us life and health. It gives us all kinds of nutrients and vitamins. And, and really, our, it's, it's, what, it's the fuel for life. Without food, we don't go very far. You know, 30, 40 days. You know, back in India, there was a kid that had, went recently how many days? I don't know, several months. And then he just disappeared. Uh, you know, so what happens when you don't eat? Poof, you're gone. Uh, it's what sustains us. Well, Jesus simply says that I am, I am that thing, I am the bread that sustains your life at another level. Now, of course, they're looking at uh, physical bread, but Jesus is really talking here about sustaining life itself, sustaining life at its deepest level. Uh, we can live to a degree on bread, but he says that bread is not enough. You need the spiritual bread, the bread that I give, and I, I am that resource. I am the bread of life itself. And your life is ultimately dependent not just on cheeseburgers and french fries and Coke, although for some of us, coffee and chocolate becomes, you know, pretty much the essence of living. But he says, I am even greater than those things. I am the sustaining force of life. That's what he means when he says, I'm the bread of life. Now, we live under, uh, in our day, under a very cruel curse, a curse that, that we share somewhat with the people of, Jesus' day, but we've enhanced it. And it's the curse of science. 
Now, I know some of you are scientists. We have some very renowned scientists in our midst. Some of you actually, you know, enjoy science. And so I'm not here to say science is a bad thing, okay? Um, you know, we, had, we, we, we all are beneficiaries of scientific discovery. It's a good thing. However, it also is for us a great curse. And it's a curse in that it has, it has in, in many ways robbed us of the spiritual realm. Uh, of course, in Jesus' day, they weren't as scientific as us, but even they wrestled with this. And as Jesus teaches us, as he explains us, as he talks to them, it's interesting their questions. Uh, and as you look at their questions, you see that these people are locked in the material, physical world. They cannot get out of or see past their own physical, material existence. Notice their questions. He says, show us, they say, show us a sign. Show us something tangible and real. You know, because feeding 20,000 people wasn't tangible and real enough. You know, we need something more. Uh, what they wanted was bread every day. He said, can't you feed us daily? We want to see this bread coming down from heaven daily. Later, later they repeated, they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread every day. You know, we'll believe you if you just feed us every day. Start up a soup kitchen, you know, Jesus feeds us, you know, kind of thing, and have a little restaurant, we'll just come eat every day, we'll love that. Okay, we'll go for that. In the physical, see, they're locked in seeing things in the physical. Uh, later, they began to murmur. Verse 41, they said, have, they began to murmur and disagree because, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this just Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can you say he came from heaven? All they can see is the physical. They say, look, we know Jesus' parents. Uh, how can he be talking about these spiritual heavenly realities? We know his parents. See, they were limited. They were blocked by the physical realm. Finally, in verse 52, they say, uh, Jesus is talking about uh, eating his flesh, and he said, they said, arguing with each other again, asking what he meant when he said, how can, this man, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And they are seeing this all very, in the very physical, real material realm. Um, if it was true in their day that they couldn't get past the physical, it's that much more true in our day. We live in a day and age where from very early on we are taught and told that life can be explained and life consists of what's physical, what's in this realm. Uh, we work very hard at explaining and dissecting our life to the nth degree by scientific terms. And you can open any number of magazines today and they'll explain how our emotions, our life, er our love life, everything is just chemistry. And it's true that at one level it is just chemistry. And it can be explained scientifically. We are, it's true, in our bodies, just one big biology experiment. And uh, we are very much dependent on our physical existence. But the problem is that we have come to see life as only that. As I talk with uh, middle school and high school students, one of the great obstacles of faith for them is comprehending a life that goes beyond that. They've been taught and told that no matter you know, how much they've learned in Sunday school, which is one hour a week, the other five days a week, they're hearing messages about how we have evolved and how our whole existence is connected and limited to and part of this physical universe. We have done a terrible job opening up the hearts and minds of our kids to the spiritual realm, to even within, within them the realm of their own soul, the realm of their own spiritual existence. 
And so for many uh, kids, and honestly, for many of us as adults, when it comes to the Bible and faith and all this stuff, it's ideas, but it's not reality. Because we've been told that all that's real and all that's reality is just chemistry and science. It's just this physical world. And so even though we tell ourselves over and over again, yeah, there's a God and there's a spiritual realm and there's eternal life, you know, it's just not real to us. Because we have lost that part of our existence. We have convinced ourselves that it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Well, what's the cure for this? Well, I have a cure. This is not out of the Bible necessarily, okay? This is not scripture, so you can take it with a grain of salt. You don't have to agree with this. You can think I'm a, a lunatic, okay? Which I may be. Um, you know, I think, I think the more we become so scientific, the more we, we reduce life to chemistry and, and, and chemical reactions and biology, the more we need to balance that with fantasy and fairy tales. You know, you're thinking, yeah, okay, he has lost it. He has gone off the deep end. Um, but the reality is that, that, and you know, there's good fantasy and there's bad fantasy. There are good fairy tales and there are stupid fairy tales. But throughout history, fantasy and fairy tales have served as a window into our own soul. Uh, you know, it's not, the, the, the dragons and the, the damsel in distress is not really just about child's imagination, although it is. But those are pictures of us. We are the damsel in distress who's locked down in the, the pit of the dungeon, trapped and strangled in darkness by evil and by, uh, by powers that would destroy us. That, that's the condition of the human soul apart from Christ. You and I are there uh, before Christ. We are in darkness. We are locked. We are, we are in, in the blackness of night. We need a knight in shining armor, somebody who's powerful, somebody who is invincible, somebody who can face the witch and the dragons and the dark evil forces and slay them and come rescue us. Well, who's our hero? Who's our redeemer? Science. No. Uh, Jesus. Yes. Okay, the gospel. That's what it's about. Um, you know, it's really sad that, that the more scientific we become, oftentimes in schools and with children, we downplay or even ridicule those, those fantasies, those fairy tales, those things that open up a child's mind to a world beyond chemistry. Uh, good fantasy, good fairy tale stirs something in our liver, in our stomach, no, in our soul, right? It stirs something in our soul. It moves something in us where we long for something beyond just our chemical existence. Now, in case you think I'm, I'm nuts, okay, and this is just silly, um, I may be silly, but I'm in good company, <laughs> okay? Uh, it's interesting, uh, along with science, you could also put in that category logic or ration, the rational thinking, okay? Rational thinking has also been a curse for us. Uh, it has also caused us to lose a lot of what's eternal and spiritual, what is of the soul. Uh, where theologians may not be too scientific, theologians tend to be overly rational. And sometimes theologians are just as much at a, at, at a risk of cutting off this great world that God has for us called our soul, called eternal life, because we become too rational. Okay, calling to my corner... Good company. 
Um, C.S. Lewis is one who argued this well. And in fact, I think it's in the book, The Abolition of Man, if you want to read about it. Argued the need for fantasy as being a tool to open up our hearts and minds to the realm of the spiritual. And he writes that because it's part of how he came to know God and part of his own conversion experience. Uh, let me read. It says, um, this, this can be seen particularly well through the passage in The Great Divorce when the uh, semi-autobiographical main character meets MacDonald, that is George MacDonald, in heaven. And uh, he quotes, I tried trembling to tell this man all that his writings had done for me. And of course, George MacDonald had written some great fantasies, which C.S. Lewis read when he was young. So I tried to tell how a certain frosty afternoon at the Leatherhead Station, when I had first bought a copy, copy of Fantasties, being then about 16 years old, had been to me what the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. Here begins the new life. I started to confess how long that life, that new life, had delayed in the region of imagination only, how slowly and reluctantly I had to come to admit that his Christianity, that is, McDonald's Christianity, had more than an accidental connection with those fantasies. How hard I had tried to see that the true name of the quality which first met me in his books is holiness. Uh, basically, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, you know, I came to, and in other places he describes this. He says, I came to know the reality of salvation. I came to know the reality of the wretchedness of my own soul and the holiness that comes through Christ, not through my logical arguments, not through my brilliant scientific understanding, but through the fantasy of George MacDonald, through the imagination of somebody who could open up for him this realm of the heart, this realm of the soul. Um, however you do it, you know, maybe you're not into fantasy, I would encourage you, you know, if you've never read a George MacDonald fantasy, I would encourage you to buy one and read it. Or read C.S. Lewis, read the Chronicles of Narnia, there are other good ones out there that open up to us a realm of our existence, that give us a glimpse into a part of who we are beyond the science, uh, especially with our children. I think it's crucial that we read to our kids uh, these stories, that we give them permission to see and explore a part of their existence beyond the physical. The reality is that for the modern man, his soul is locked in a boundless winter where there is no Christmas. Okay, And a lot of us need to walk through the wardrobe of imagination and find the condition of our soul. Find a place that may be locked up in winter. There may be a place of dreary barrenness that's empty and cold and frozen. And invite Jesus to come in and turn it into spring. To melt the loneliness and desolation of our soul with his grace and his presence and to bring a place where there's green grass and flowers and forest and wood. And whereas Jesus says here, the river of life flows through us. And there's a picnic in the woods with Jesus where we partake of the bread of life. Okay, what Jesus is talking about here cannot happen in the physical. It cannot happen if we only see our lives in terms of chemistry and biology. It is something that happens in the realm and the world of the soul. And for too long, modern man, and, and sadly, the modern church has neglected and left abandoned our soul. 
most people are very vaguely aware that they even have one, much less how to find it or how to nurture it or what kind of shape it's in. Uh, like anything else, if you don't feed your body, it grows weak and weary and feeble and eventually dies. Same is true of our soul. Same is true of the spiritual realm of our life. If we don't feed it and sustain it on the bread of life, it will become weak and weary and feeble and eventually it will die. And Jesus says that this is life in this realm of the soul. Uh, he says this is the eternal life. Okay, the life in the body and the physical is temporary. It's short. It's not substantial. It's limited. Someday we will vacate this physical world and we will no longer continue to be a biology experiment. Okay? It's going to, you know, the big bang is going to bang and it's going to be all over for us. The spiritual realm is eternal. And, and so Jesus says that's the realm where life really happens. And he's trying to explain this to these people. Okay, now here's a group of people much like us who can't get past this physical barrier of seeing only the literal, of seeing only their life as it, as it consists of eating bread and going to work and doing their chores and going to sleep, uh, making babies, raising children, but that's all there is. And Jesus is trying to say to them, you know, I am the true bread of life. I am the true food for a life that exists beyond that. You need to open up your eyes and see that. So we need to be, and Jesus says to us, that uh, we need to be feeding our soul. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, they love this concept of uh, not having to, you know, cook food. They love this idea of getting, you know, Burger King every day or Subway or I don't know, whatever sticky rice and guy talk. Whatever it is, you, you know, is your staple diet. Um, and of course, Jesus says that's not where it is. What I come is to, is to satisfy a hunger that is much deeper than that. What I, am, what I come for is to give you a, a drink that quenches a thirst much deeper than that. In fact, it's interesting, the word that he uses for thirst here can be translated this way. Thayer's, Thayer's uh, trans, um, defines it this way. He says, figuratively, it speaks of those who are said to thirst, who painfully feel their want of and eagerly long for those things by which the soul is refreshed, supported, and strengthened. Jesus says, I come to fill you, really, at a much deeper level than you can imagine. That's what food does. It fills us. You know, nothing like a good meal where we are full. He says, I come to fill you uh, in the deepest parts of your being with myself, feeding our soul in ways that only Jesus can, meeting the needs of our life in the ways that only Jesus can. Um, well, how do we find our way in all this? Okay, this all sounds great and wonderful. But uh, apart from reading, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, how do we do this? How do we find our way? Well, the people in the crowd are, are, are confused and perplexed. And on top of that, Jesus says to them, he says, that all you have to do is believe. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes will never thirst. Two, two requirements. He says, all you have to do is come and believe. But then he says to them, you have not believed me, even though you have seen me. He says, okay, you have seen the bread. You have seen God incarnate. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
Um, but it's not getting you anywhere because you don't really believe my words. Uh, Jesus could be very discouraged by this. Jesus could be thinking, you know, I'm never going to get through. Uh, I'm preaching. I'm doing these incredible miracles. I'm, I'm, I'm giving the world's best object lessons. I mean, I wish I could give object lessons like this, you know. When it came to object lessons, Jesus could do such huge things. Uh, the best I can do is like flannel graph or something. Uh, I, you know, he could do amazing things, and they still just were not getting it. It could have been very discouraging for him. But it wasn't. Because he had this perspective. He says, he says you will find your way, and there's two parts of it. The first of part is the will and work of the Father. The second part is the responsibility of man. So let's look at the will and work of the Father first. He says, uh, You haven't believed, even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then jumping over to verse 44. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I who was sent from God have seen him. Uh, how do we find our way to come to, to Jesus? Uh, this world, this, this, to have our soul sustained and, and fed and filled with Christ means we have to come to him. But how do we find our way to him? Well, Jesus says clearly that it is, first of all, a matter of God's will. It is a matter of God's design and will to call out for himself a group of people who become a gift to Jesus. And Jesus says that all those who are given to me, I will not throw away. In other words, uh, it's a Greek expression to me, which means I will hold on to them. I will keep them. I will protect them. And they will not escape. They will not, uh, you know, I'm not just going to lose them, throw them off. Okay? I'm going to hang on to them. Um, it is a matter of God's purpose to save us. It is first and foremost the will and work of God that anyone comes to him. Uh, Jesus said, I come to do the Father's will, and the Father's will is to give some people to me as a gift, to give some as a possession that I am to save and to seal for eternal life and will one day raise from, uh, raise from the dead. Um, the, word, the word come, he says uh, in verse 37, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. Powerful word. Uh, not the normal wor word used throughout John and throughout most of the New Testament for someone who comes to somebody. It's a very unique and special word, and it can be translated with the idea of to come in order to seek, seek intimacy with. Okay, in other words, the crowds were coming to Jesus, but they weren't connecting with Jesus. He's talking about the will and work of the Father that makes a way so that those who come not just come and see him, but develop a personal, intimate relationship with him. That's the ultimate goal of salvation, that we would 
draw into this personal relationship with Christ. Uh, as we do that, Jesus promises he will preserve and protect. He will hold on to us. He won't let us be snatched away. Um, it's all ultimately according to God's will. In other words, Jesus isn't worried here that nobody's going to get it. He is confident that, G, that God the Father is going to save some. That God the Father, by his will, is going to bring those he chooses to him for salvation. Uh, if this crowd didn't get it, it wasn't a problem for Jesus because he knew that some would. That God in his divine sovereign will would bring some to himself. Uh, he goes on to, to describe this. He says in verse 44 that no one can come to the Father, can come to me, unless the Father draws him. So no one comes to me, nobody comes to me for salvation to be the bread of life, to eat of this bread, unless the Father draws him. Another powerful word has the idea of impelling someone. Really it has the idea of dragging someone. Uh, the truth is that we are at some level all brought to God, brought to Jesus because God the Father drags us there. That's what Jesus says. He says, no one comes to the Father unless, comes to Jesus unless the Father drags them, impels them, woos them to the Son. Uh, the good news in this is that for us and for all those we, we would seek to win to Christ, ultimately it's not a job for us to convince them. It's not a job for us to drag them to Christ. Have you ever tried this? I have. I have tried dragging people to Jesus. They don't drag very well, okay? I have tried using my superior logic to argue them to Christ. All, all you do is make people mad, okay? You just make them angry. And you don't draw, draw them to Christ. Oftentimes what I've done is draw, drive them away. I remember one of the scariest moments of my life was not being attacked by a mugger at a bus stop, but by a guy with a really large Bible at a bus stop, preaching to people and like hitting them over the head with his Bible. It was, it was terrifying. And everybody was like trying to like, you know, decide they were going to take a taxi instead of the bus. Uh, people were just, you know, the first bus came along, everybody got on. I don't know where they were going, but they were just leaving that bus stop. Right? The, the amazing thing is that we don't have to drag anybody to Christ. That's the work of God the Father. He will bring them along. He will draw them to the Son. He and his will and his divine sovereign power will call some to salvation and will make it clear to them. It goes on, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who, um, as it is written, they will be taught by God. This is a cool, cool, cool thing. We came to God and we come to Jesus because God the Father himself teaches us. He comes into our heart and mind and opens our mind to the truth. I praise God that my preaching does not depend on me. If it did, yeah, I would be out of a job, okay? Or I'd have to be much more entertaining. That would be my only hope. I'd have to learn magic or something. Uh, I don't have to, though, because God the Father will ultimately teach people, okay? Uh, if you didn't learn anything, it's not my fault, okay? It's because God was teaching you, and, you know, either he's a bad teacher or you're a bad student. I'll let you figure that out, Okay? Well, you decide that one. Because ultimately, God himself teaches us, opens our mind to the truth, helps us understand this world of our soul and our heart and the spiritual realm and eternal life and sin and death. He communicates those things to us. So it's not up to us to teach people and convince people and drag people. 
and uh, argue them into the kingdom. We proclaim the truth, but ultimately God the Father himself teaches them. And it says they listen, they learn, and then they come to him. They come to the Son. They come to Christ. Uh, So on the one hand, it is the work and will of the Father. It is something that God does to bring people to himself. Um, You know, if you know a lot about theology, you would say, well, that sounds awfully reformed. That sounds awful Calvinistic. Well, I will admit that it is. And uh, I would say that, you know, I don't know if I'm a Calvinist or not, but probably Jesus was at some level, okay? okay? These are his words, not mine. This is Jesus saying, no one can come to the Father unless, or no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Um, but let's also look at the other side of the coin. As Jesus unfolds these powerful truths of God's sovereign work to save us, he also at the same time paints this very clear picture of the responsibility of every individual to believe and to come on their own. Okay, Jesus does not say, you know, I don't know why I'm teaching you guys, it doesn't matter anyway, because God just has to do it, so let's just all go home and forget this whole thing. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, don't worry about it, if you're going to get saved, you'll get saved, if not, you're just tough out of luck, so, you know, just, it's, you're just doomed either way. He doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? He says, whoever believes, whoever comes to me, he says to them, look, God is teaching for all those who listen and learn, they will come to me. Alongside this, Jesus paints this amazing picture of our human responsibility and his call to them to respond to what he's saying. He says, look, you have a part in this. You have to seek me. You have to come to me. Okay, that's a, a part of our own conscious choice and will. Okay, we're not drug against our will. At some point, we must submit our will to God's and choose to come to him, to choose to listen, to choose to learn. Verse 35, he says, He who comes will not be hungry. So we come and we eat. Uh, we seek him. We, we, we come before him. Verse 36, he says, We must seek him. And verse 40, he says, uh, He has appeared. He's come and we've seen him. Uh, in verse 45, he says, we must listen and learn. Uh, education is a great picture of this. Uh, in a classroom, do teachers teach or do stu- students learn? All of you teachers. It's all about the teachers, right? All of you students. All about the students. Okay, which is it? Well, it's kind of the strange combination of both. Teachers do teaching, and somehow they motivate and move students, if they're good, to learn. Uh, Students are taught only to the degree that they take ownership of it and actively participate in learning. What a great picture of what God does. He teaches us. He, He so constructs things so that we can clearly see and understand Him. But at some point we have to actively participate and become learners and hear and listen. Um, And so we have a responsibility. Nobody can stand before God and say, well, God, it's not my fault. You didn't drag me hard enough. Every person is responsible to receive him or not, to come to him or not, ultimately to believe or not. You and I have the choice before us to take by faith what God has proclaimed, to take by faith Jesus. In fact, when it comes, we'll see in the next verse, that eating the bread consuming Christ 
appropriating him is simply a matter of believing. Either we accept and draw him into our life by faith, or we don't. And that's a matter of our own responsibility. Well, a lot of people have wrestled with these two things and would, would say, how can both be true? How can it be true that God does this work that makes, brings us to salvation, but at the same time we're responsible to, to follow and believe? That seems impossible. Well, it, it, it does seem impossible, and sadly when you apply human logic, you can argue yourself into some very bad places. Uh, you know, Jesus may have been somewhat of a Calvinist. He was not a hyper-Calvinist, okay? Because I believe both of these things must be true. We say, how can they both be true? Well, let me explain it this way. I don't know, okay? <laughs> but uh, I think the problem is this, that we try to use two-dimensional logic to explain a three-dimensional truth. You know, a two-dimensional means like a sheet of paper. On a sheet of paper, you can only draw a square or a circle. You cannot really draw a cube or a sphere. Now, some of you artists are going, oh, I can draw a cube or a sphere. Well, you can pretend to draw one. Okay? You can make believe that it's a sphere or a ball. You can, through shading and you know, tricks, you can trick people into thinking there is a box, a three-dimensional box on a flat piece of paper. But it's a lie. Okay? It's, it's deception. It's not real. It's still just a flat piece of paper with flat lines. And here's the reality. If I took a three-dimensional ball and you drew a two-dimensional box, I can never put the real three-dimensional ball in that two-dimensional box. Okay? It cannot be done. Okay? It's impossible. However, if I build a three-dimensional box in the three-dimensional world, it's very simple to put a ball into it. Uh, it's very simple to do any number of things with that box that you could not do in a two-dimensional world. I could put something in that box, put that box into a bigger box, set it on top of a rocket, and shoot it to the moon. Okay, you can't do that on paper. All right? Um, I think a lot of times we get ourselves in trouble because we use logic and rational and reasoning that's two-dimensional to try to explain God who's in, the, who's in a three-dimensional universe. And the problem is this. If we take logic, or human logic, too far on the side of God's sovereignty, we end up making the, the terrible error of saying that God is so sovereign that he's ultimately the cause and source of all evil in the world. Okay? That uh, people have no choice and ultimately God is, is the, the cause of it all. And ultimately he becomes the one who's attributed with evil. Uh, there's a problem with that. Okay? And, and that's the logical end to that path of hyper-Calvinism. At the same time, though, we can make the same argument that if you take our two-dimensional logic and take the path of human free will to its ultimate extreme, apart from God's sovereignty, that it makes man, man's will uh, superior to God's, which is also a problem. So therefore, however we explain it, I don't know, but the reality is that both of those things must be true. And Jesus taught them that both must be true. And I believe Paul also taught that both of those things must be true. Yes, it is God's work, but yes, we are responsible to choose and decide. Uh, when we teach, when we preach, when we proclaim the gospel to people, we proclaim a gospel of personal accountability. We tell people, look, you must decide, you must believe, you must come, you must seek. You must knock, 
You must seek, you must ask. And if you do, you will find. And the door will be opened. All right? So there's that theology lesson. Okay. And if you don't agree, that's good. You don't have to. But I, I encourage you to read your Bible. Okay? And you can argue with Jesus. Okay, lastly. Uh, the most important thing is not how we explain all that. We don't, the more important thing is not that we figure out how that works, but the important thing is this. Verse 53 says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Uh, finally, at last, Jesus resorts to like super over-the-top, extended, extreme overstatement and hyperbole. Um, and this really just like blows their brain because like in Jewish, you know, they can't even eat pig, much less like drink blood, much less eat people. Okay, and even in you know the most barbaric, well, all but the most barbaric cultures, we understand that eating people is a bad thing. And so Jesus just throws that out there. Unless you, you know, eat me, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. Well, at this point, you know, the, the Pharisees are just like blowing fuses right and left. People are just like passing out, you know. Um, in fact, in the next passage, it talks about a whole bunch of this crowd leave and abandon him. And they go, this guy's a nutcase. You know, he may, he, he may be able to feed 20,000 people, but he's a nutcase. Okay? And they don't understand, they don't get it. Um, because they can't get past this, this barrier of the physical. They can't get past this wall of life in this body, in this time, in this space. They can't see what Jesus is talking about in the spiritual realm of the soul and the heart. But Jesus says that we must feast continually on him if we are to have eternal life. And it is really an amazing picture it's an amazing picture, first and foremost, of the cross. Uh, when he talks about his flesh and his blood, it clearly points us to his death on the cross. He is life, but he makes life available to us primarily through his sacrifice on the cross. He is the Passover lamb. Uh, part of the feast of Passover is not only did the lamb provide protection by putting that blood over it, but they ate the lamb. Jesus says, I am the Passover lamb. My blood has caused death to pass over you and for you to pass out of death into life. But you've got to eat the lamb. You've got to partake of my body. Uh, he, does, he doesn't mean here, obviously, literally. The, the Catholics got this a bit confused with the whole you know, communion becoming like the real flesh of Jesus because they thought that's the only way we can do this. You know, is that when we take communion, somehow the bread turns into his real body. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about eating of his flesh spiritually by faith. He just said it. It's by believing. By faith, we, we take into ourselves his death. And we become participants with him of the cross. And so we partake of his flesh. We join with him. We die with him on the cross. Our life becomes very bound up with his on the cross. And so Paul can say that we died with Christ. 
And we were raised to new life with him. That's what it means to eat. That's what it means to partake of him. We join with him in his death. We drink of his blood. His blood is applied as a cleansing fountain to our heart and soul. Um, So we eat and we drink of Christ by faith. We daily, and it's interesting, Jesus uses a word here that's continual present tense. He says, you must be continually feeding on me. Okay, it's not a one-time thing at salvation when we pray some prayer and we, we identify with the cross and then from then on we don't have to worry about partaking of Jesus. It's a daily thing. And because of that, Jesus says that through this, uh, in verse uh, 56, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And later in John 15, 14 and 15, Jesus talks about this abiding life. Uh, it, it begins here, that when we, we draw into this intimate relationship with Christ where he comes into us and we come into him, and our life becomes t- inter- intertwined with Christ. We become totally dependent on him and he becomes the sustainer of life for us. Finally, Jesus says, I am the true bread. Uh, sorry, verse 57. I live because the living Father, the self-sustaining Father who sent me, lives. In the same way, he gave life to me. Anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. Uh, Jesus says, God the Father has life in himself. Okay? God does not derive life from any other source. God does not have to eat bread. He doesn't have to drink he doesn't need fertilizer. Uh, he, he doesn't need coffee. Amazing. Okay? He needs nothing outside of himself to exist. He says that God the Father has given that same quality of self-sustaining life to Jesus. Jesus just lives. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself for life. And he says through that flow of life, uh, ultimately he was raised to life. Jesus died but because he is self-sustaining life, he could rise from the dead. Okay? And it's through that life he gives us life. I don't understand any of that. Okay? Biology certainly can't explain that. And I don't know that most fairy tales could. But we by faith acknowledge and accept the fact that we have life, abundant life in Christ. Um, finally, he says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die, as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but they will live forever. Uh, You know, as we day by day live life, uh, it's a good thing to eat breakfast, it's a good thing to eat lunch, it's a good thing to eat dinner. Uh, I I really recommend a few snacks in between with dessert, okay? But equally true is that we must feed our soul, our spiritual life, daily. Uh, And we all know we're supposed to like read the Bible and pray. We all know we're supposed to have devotions. But we need to learn to do more than just go through some mental exercise where we restate the facts we already know. But it never really feeds our soul. Uh, Jesus wants to be for us real food and real drink that nourishes our life. Um, He doesn't want us to just be going through religious motions. Uh, He wants us to come to church. He wants us to be genuinely fed. 
Uh, if it's a matter of my own words or just speaking some thoughts, it's not going to go very far. But if we can, in those words and in those pictures and in those images, uh, grab hold of a deeper life that Jesus and a deeper work that Jesus wants to do within our soul, it's a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I can't explain soul and spirit, but uh, for me it's been very helpful to just picture that in, in, in my existence somewhere there's, there's like a Narnia. There's a Timmy land, you know. There's a Tim in Wonderland. But there's this space, this place, this kind of infinite place called the soul. And that it's the place where God comes. And if I can learn to go through the door, if it's a wardrobe or whatever, if I can go through the door of kind of this physical world into this realm of my soul, that that's the place where we meet and commune with God. That that is the place where there is a feast and a table set before us. Where when we eat his word, it doesn't just stimulate our mind and our thinking, but it does things in ways we can't even imagine. That it feeds and fills us in ways we can't even conceive. Because it's a, it's a universe within us uh, that is deep and wide and rich and that is not physical, that hungers and longs for something. Uh, you know, the way that I know this is real and true is that I, I, we have the opportunity to witness the lives of people who have every conceivable need met in abundance. The lives of the rich and the famous who have every longing for glory and fame and money and success, who have every need lavishly and luxuriously met, who can eat, you know, these $10,000 steak dinners and can wear like these $15,000 shoes, you know, and they, uh, they apparently can have sex like whenever they want and every dream imaginable fulfilled for them. And I look at those people and sadly, day after day, you see stories and accounts of these people whose lives are broken and miserable and empty, hollow. And so that tells me that all of that stuff doesn't really do anything. All that stuff doesn't really fill you up like Satan tries to convince it it does. Because they are people whose lives are just empty and shallow and hollow. And they are hungry for something more. The great thing is, we know we're not rich, we're not famous, uh, most of us. Uh, you know, most of us don't get our needs met lavishly. But you know what? We can be happy. We can have joy and have a full life because it doesn't come through those things. It comes through the bread of life. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, whoever comes, I will give of my own self to feed and fill you. I offer my own blood and flesh as nourishment for your soul. Let's pray. Father, even now as we, as we just bow our heads, we ask that you would, you would help us open and, and crack open that door to our soul become aware of a whole realm of our existence that the world has told us does not and cannot exist 
And maybe for a large part of our own life, we have ignored and lived as if it did not exist. But Lord, there is within us a realm of longing and hungering and thirsting that all the material things in this world cannot satisfy. That no matter how much we stuff ourselves, we could still be achingly hungry in this this wasteland of our soul. When I think of David who cried out uh, that, that his soul thirsted for God like a parched and weary land where there was no water. And he begged that you would become the downpour of rain, the gushing river of life that would bring drink to his thirsty soul. Father, even now as we peek into our own inner heart, help us to sense its condition, uh, the state that it's in. And Father, help us to see what Jesus is talking about here in terms of our soul, in terms of feeding us with our eternal life, a life that exists far above and beyond uh, what we understand life to be in this physical world. Lord, help us not to be like these Israelites who, who had lost faith and had lost sight of something more to their life than just daily bread and physical needs. Lord, help us to become aware of the true hunger of our heart for you. And Lord, we thank you that you ha- desire to, to lavishly fill every thirst to quench every thirst, to fill every hungry appetite, if we'll just come and by faith believe that Jesus is the very nourishment of our soul, the very bread of life. Lord, help us to feast on you even now as we lift our voices in song. May you be poured into our hearts and minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.